Um, I'm going to review a few of those details just in brief for those of you that weren't here, and then go into some of the covenant signs, some of the other things that happened in the life of Abram as a result of that covenant being made. So God came to Abram in Genesis 15 and made a covenant with him, a flood covenant. They cut the covenant together. Abram uh, divides a number of animals in half, and their blood flows into this into this ditch in between the halves of the animals, and God walks through that blood path, making a covenant with Abram, with Abram at that time to do you know this and this and this for him. Mostly it was a it was a land and extended deal. And I told you how that Jesus uh, walked the blood path again later on on his way from the Temple Mount to the Garden of Gethsemane when he would have crossed over the Kidron Valley or the Kidron Brook which would have been red with the blood of the Passover lambs killed on the Temple Mount that day. Uh, the Jesus, uh, Jesus' death, I don't want to say it was a result of this covenant because I think it would have happened Regardless, I think this was I think this was part of God's plan of redemption to bring the world back to Himself, and yet this is how God chose to do it, and so we could say in a sense that Jesus' death, Jesus dying on the cross, Jesus' time in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Last Supper, and all of that, came about as a result of the covenant that God made with Abram in Genesis chapter 15. Uh, the making of the blood covenant does not end with Genesis 15. And if you look over the next several chapters, you see some of the some of the other details of that covenant getting played out in the life of Abram. And that's what I want to look at tonight. Um, some questions I have about the life of Abram. Now I told you already that there's things in the Bible that I read and they don't make sense to me. I don't know why in the world God chose to do certain things the way He did. And the life of Abram is, is no exception to that. So there's three questions that I have to look at uh, in regards to the life of Abram. Number one, why did God tell Abram and Sarah, Sarai to change their names? That's the first one. It's just kind of just thrown in there in Genesis chapter 17. Well, God says, all right, Abram, your name is going to now be Abraham. Sarai, your name is now going to be Sarah. And okay, well, I guess they changed their names and we move on. No, there was actually a reason for that. Uh, later on in Genesis 17... God makes a very important covenant with Abram, the covenant of circumcision. And I want to look at that a little bit to see uh, why God would have uh, chosen to take that route, I suppose. Abram might have chosen something different, I suppose. Um, and the third question I have then is, why did God tell Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac? Now, if I would just lay those questions out for you and say, okay, so why did God tell Abraham and Sarah to change their names? You know why? What about circumcision? Like, what in the world? And then we get to Genesis 22, and God, that opens the story with God tells Abraham, okay, Abraham, I want you to take Isaac and go sacrifice him on a mountain. And Abraham just does, you know, just goes. Which is what any loving father would do, you know, in, in his shoes, right? It's like, no, there was a lot of other things going on. <clears throat> so to answer these questions, when you go back to what life was like for them in ancient times. So if somebody broke into your house, what would you do? What do you what would you do if you see some, if you'd see somebody break into your neighbor's house at night? What would you do? 
911. You call 911. Okay. Decent response. What would you do if you're uh, if you went out and uh, wrecked your vehicle this evening? You're driving along the road. Somebody pulls out in front of you, and you have a wreck. What do you do? Call somebody for help. Who pays for the loss of your vehicle? You don't know? Maybe we should have some review on vehicle driving. So who pays for your vehicle if you wreck it? The insurance companies? What do you if your house burns down? You don't have houses. You know who you call? You call the insurance company, right? <coughs> You know, insurance companies are a transfer of liability. They say, if you pay me a certain amount of money per year, I'll assume the risk of, you know, you destroying whatever it is that they're insuring. So we have, in our 21st century world, we have a lot of, we have a lot of um, barriers that we've built between ourselves and calamity, right? Something bad happens, you call 911. You know that the police will come, or the fire company will come, or the ambulance will come might take a while, but you know that there's somebody out there that will come help you. Same thing if, uh, if your house burns down. We had, we had uh, a really bad hailstorm come through about a year and a half ago and like was shattering people's windows and damaging their vehicles and tearing up machines on their roof. And like literally a hundred houses within five miles of my place got new roofs last year because of this hailstorm that came through. We have insurance and things to like separate ourselves from risk. So imagine now that you're living like Abraham in the Judean wilderness. It's a rough, rugged place. You're surrounded by the Hittites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, a whole bunch of other nations. And the Hittites, by the way, were quite a powerful nation. They were nothing to be met. They were nothing to mess with. And uh, not to mention the Amalekites, who were a nation of thieves and slave traders, as we find out later in the story of Exodus. What do you do if somebody attacks your camp? Well, unless you're very sizable and are able to take care of yourself, the answer is nothing. There's nothing you can do. And in Bedouin culture, um, stealing was considered a perfectly legitimate way of providing for your needs. Literally. Like, why would you grow your own crops when you can go somewhere else and steal them? and take them by force. Uh, now, not everybody was like that, but uh, it's certainly, if you look throughout uh, Jewish history in some of their extra-biblical writings, it's, it was very common and considered a, a quite acceptable thing to do. If, if, David, if King David needed, uh, needed food, why bother growing your own? Why don't you just go and steal some from the Edomites, for example, or something like that? That was normal for them. They understood that. But the problem is, what happens if you have you know, you're a little 300 people in your, in your people group, and, you know, Simeon, five miles over the hill, has 800. Well, too bad for you, right? Anytime Simeon needs something, he comes to your camp and gets it, and, you know, you're shafted. Well, the blood covenant was an answer to some of that problem. Two parties would get together, and they would make an agreement <clears throat> And they would say, okay, uh, you have, you would say this is Nathan Linford making this agreement. And uh, 
I would, Linford and I would get together. We would cut a covenant, literally. We might do the blood path thing uh, like Abram and God did. Um, you might uh, make a cut on your arm or around your finger. Coincidentally enough, they used the ring finger to make covenants, even back in the time of the patriarchs. They would you know, cut a, a gash around their finger, and then they would, you would press your hands together and mix your blood, or you would press your arms together and mix your blood. There's a guy that actually wrote about a, uh, this is probably the last 150, 200 years, of a native Syrian, a, a trusted source that said he saw a blood covenant taking place one time. There's these two guys uh, back in the, the wilderness of Syria somewhere that uh, got along so splendidly they decided to make a blood covenant. There was this big ceremony. They cut gashes in their, in their forearms and then stuck a reed in each other's arms and like, like sucked out some of each other's blood. And the reason for that is so that you're actually, like you could say that this person is now a part of you. You get that. It's not like some sadistic glee of sucking somebody else's blood, but you're like, you're mixing your blood and saying that this person is my brother and the same blood flows in my veins that flows in his, that sort of thing. Well, in Bedouin culture, that's what they would do. They would, they would mix the blood somehow, either by you know, pressing their arms together and doing this number, or um, drinking it, drinking each other's blood perhaps. And then they would take the cut, and they would, uh, they would pack it full of like dirt or sand. And the reason they would do this is they wanted to make that scar as big as possible. You follow, you follow what's happening? Now why would you want to do that? Well, you make a, you, if, you walk into, uh, if you walk into town and you see a dude over there, this, this guy standing over there, and he has you know, his, his five camels with him, and you're like, you know, dude, I could really use a camel. So you grab your sword and you go over to this guy because you're going to kill him and take his camels. And then you see that he's got a scar on his arm, and you're like, okay, I have no idea who's got his back, but I know that somebody does. Follow you. Follow what's going on. It was a visible symbol of a covenant that was made, where if where I would tell Linford, look, Linford, if your wife dies, I will take care of your family. If something if somebody attacks you, I will come and help you. If you're in need, I'm your man. You can call me anytime. And Linford would say the same thing back to me. And then we would enter. We would be in this blood covenant together. There would be a visible sign, you know, either on our arms or on our fingers, of the fact letting everybody else know that we are in league with each other. We're together, no matter what happens, we're taking care of each other. That was their insurance policy in ancient times. The scar was a, um, the scar was a sign telling everyone, it was a constant reminder, that this person is in a blood covenant. Okay, so let's get to our questions, my questions about the, uh, the actions of God and Abram going on here throughout the story of Abram and Sarah. So why the name change? Genesis 17, we read. Oh, one other thing that happened as a result of a blood covenant is that the two parties would take on each other's names. They would literally, they would not only mix their blood, they would, they would mix their names together. So if Linford and I made a covenant, our, my tribe and his tribe might now be called, you know, like Nathanford or something like that. I know it sounds cheesy, but it's, it's a way of identifying 
our, of, of us identifying with each other. So, coincidentally enough, we have a name change going on here. How many of you, how many of you uh, are familiar with this, this passage in Numbers? Um, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. We call that the blessing of Aaron. Do you have any idea what the next verse is? Anybody got it? This is what the passage reads in uh, Numbers 6.22. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Aaron and unto his sons, saying, On this wise ye shall bless the children of Israel, saying unto them, The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Last verse in the chapter. And they shall put my name on the, upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. It's that interesting phrase, God says, They shall put my name on the children of Israel. What does that mean? Genesis chapter 17. Three to five. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with, is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham, for a father of many nations have I made thee. Then later on in the chapter, God says, And God said unto Abraham, As for Sarai thy wife, Thou shalt not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall her name be. How do we understand this? Exodus chapter 3. Do I have this up here? Well, maybe I got a little bit ahead of myself there. Exodus chapter 3. And Moses said unto God, so this is when God comes to Moses at the burning bush. And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, the God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. Now the word, the, uh, the phrase, what's going on there in Hebrew is, is uh, God is telling Moses, This is my name. I am that I am. Make absolutely no sense. So let me see if I can... Um, if I can break that down for you here. This is what that name looks like. yod Hey vav Hey, or actually wa is how it would have been pronounced. yod Hey vav wa Hey. Now, to understand that better, when you normally read in English, you read from left to right, correct? You start at the beginning of a book, and you read this way. Hebrew, it's different. Notice anything funny about this book? This book is a... Uh, a Hebrew-English Bible, or it's, a, it's from the Gospels. You start back here. There's the beginning of the book. Matthew chapter 1 starts in here, and you work your way to the front. It's backwards. It's not so unusual. Chinese goes up and down. Um, Hebrew goes front to back. And so if you're looking at this, so these verses would start here and work their way this way, right to left. So that's what's going on uh, with with uh, this, this deal right here. So the first letter is Yod, He, Vav, He. So it's, there's the, it's the letter Yod, then He, then Vav, and then followed by He at the end. And we use that loosely translated as Yahweh. Now it's not actually a word, but scholars over the years or the ancient Hebrews or whoever it was just 
added some sound or added some uh, some vowels to it and made it Yahweh, we would say Jehovah, which is inaccurate because there is no J sound in the Hebrew language. It's yeah. But God said, that is God said to Moses, that's my name. So we have Yod Hevake. Let me show you what God does to Abraham and Sarah. So this is how you spell Abram. Again, right to left. And this is Sarai, right to left. God takes the He out of his name and drops it down here into Abraham and makes Abram Abraham. See what's going on? Does the same thing with Sarai. He takes Sarai and adds the A-H to the end of her name and calls her Sarah. Now, I have no idea if Abraham and Sarah even knew what was going on here because God tells Moses later in Exodus that he said, to you, I'm going to make, I'm going to make you know my name, Yahweh. But he said, well, your fathers didn't know me by that name. But, regardless of whether or not Abraham and Sarah understood what was going on, they carried God's name with them for the rest of their lives. Literally, when they introduced themselves, or when Abraham would have, Abraham would have introduced himself, it was, I am Abraham. And the reason it was Abraham and not Abram is because God changed his name. God took part of his own name and gave it to Abram as a, uh, an outworking of that blood covenant that was made. They literally took God's name with them wherever they went. And so when God said in Numbers chapter 6, I want you to put my name on the children of Israel, that was literal. Because God calls them the children of Abraham. That means that to be an Israelite meant you carried God's name with you. There's another really interesting thing about the name Israelite. Jacob's name was changed to Israel after he fought with God. Did you know that Israel means someone who wrestles with God? And so if you're struggling with God, it's okay, because he actually calls his own people the people who struggle with God. All right. Second question I have. Why the covenant of circumcision? Uh, Genesis chapter 17, 9 to 14. And God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant before... Oh, sorry, thou shalt keep my covenant, therefore, thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. This is my covenant, which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man child among you shall be circumcised. You shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant betwixt me and you. And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you. Every man child in your generations, he that is born in the house or bought with money of any stranger which is not of thy seed. He that is born in thy house and he that is bought with thy money must need be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised man child whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that child, sorry, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He hath broken my covenant. I know that this is maybe an awkward subject to talk about. And I believe it or not, there are like subjects that are even for me are awkward to talk about. I know that may come as a shock to you. But if we can look if we can look past the awkwardness of the of the situation here and, and try to understand why would God include genital mutilation as a part of his covenant? Because that's what it is. It's like why? 
would God do something like that? Literally cutting the covenant again. Now I told you that uh, they would make blood covenants, but usually the sign was where you could see it, right? We assume that when Abraham went to the marketplace after this, people didn't automatically know that he had a sign of the covenant on him. So what's the point? Why would God ask Abraham to cut a covenant like this? It's not a very noticeable place to put a scar. So what's going on? The word in question is orla, foreskin. It is actually a term used in fruit trees. It's a husbandry term. And it is the, it is the young fruit. I'm trying to think of how I can best explain this. So you remember when the children of Israel entered in the land of Canaan, and God told them, you're not to eat of the fruit trees for three years. Does that sound familiar to you? You're not to, you're not to just partake of everything that the land has to offer. I want you to live there. You're going to wait. I think it was three years or four years, and then the next year you were allowed to eat the fruit after that. Why? God called the fruit of those first several years orla. And he said, you're not to eat of it. Why not? The best, as best as I can put it, it means this. The orla was the unsanctified part of a fruit tree that you were not to eat because it did not belong to you. You were not to consume it because it belonged to God and not to you. Now why would God ask Abraham? Sorry, one other thing about fruit. What is the purpose of fruit on a tree? What are your ideas? Why does an apple tree bear apples? What are those apples for? Nobody knows? To eat. What else? To grow more apple trees, right? You know, they have like little seeds in the center. So apples do two things. They give life, and it's the tree's way of reproducing itself. Make sense? It's the life-giving part of a tree. So why is God telling Abraham? i got to stick with my notes here because it's... Let's take that idea to circumcision. Every male descendant of Abraham, including servants that were not his descendants, but were but you know slaves that he bought and brought into his camp, they were to put the sign of the covenant of God on the part of their body that was responsible for reproduction. Does that make sense? The part of them that was to continue on life for the children of Abraham was to be marked with the sign of God's covenant. Why? What exactly does that mean? It means, Abraham, that you and your descendants, on the part of you that gives life, you need to have a sign of God's covenant, and you're not allowed to use that part of you You're not allowed to mix that part of you with anything other than God's plan. God was very specific to the children of Israel. He did not want them intermarrying with the tribes around them, right? Why not? Who cares? It was because they were to raise up a pure seed, because they were the nation that was going to bring the Messiah into the world. 
And God said, that life-giving part of you, I want you to remember, that is mine. You're not to use that for anything else other than my purposes. Now the interesting thing about that is that when Satan tempts us today, men and women, one of the things that is the most effective when we are struggling is the part of us that gives life. In other words, we stop giving life. Or it starts becoming tainted. Do you feel like giving when you're not doing well? See, God created us to be creators. That's part of the image of God in us. God created us to give life. Yes, he created us to reproduce life and have children. But beyond that, he also created us to give life to each other. And when we mix that with the world, or we begin to take in other things that aren't of God, the life-giving part of us starts to die. And God said to the children of Israel, I want you to put the sign of my covenant on the part of you that is responsible for giving life. In other words, you're never to taint that part of you. Now the interesting thing about circumcision <coughs> excuse me, is that after Jesus is born, God seems to lose interest in it. Now, I'm not saying that it's not for the Jews to do today. <coughs> excuse me, things like that. But it's possible that it served its purpose. God gave it to them as a reminder that when you raise up children, they are to be mine. You are to raise them for me. And then when Jesus was born, <coughs> I don't know exactly how all that works together, but it seems like God's, after that God says, you know what, it doesn't matter anymore. Circumcised, uncircumcised, that's not the point. <coughs> Circumcision was the constant reminder that life, that the life that flowed out of their lives was to be pure, undimmed, and untainted from mixing with the world. That's asking a lot for enough from a 99-year-old man. Later on, we'll get into uh, Genesis 18, not tonight. But uh, we find out how Abraham was handling himself after his circumcision. And uh, did you ever wonder how he broke the news to his household? Like, how would you like it if your boss comes back to you and says, hey, God told me today that everybody's going to get circumcised? Um, yeah. You would, you would have some questions. And speaking of questions, the sacrifice of Isaac raises some questions. <clears throat> so what would you do if God told you to kill someone? You know, I asked this to my class at CBS, and they're like, well, God wouldn't tell us to do that. That's not the point. I asked, what would you do if God would tell you to kill someone? And Dietrich Mast, who was in my class at the time, he's like, well, I'd do it. And you would do it, wouldn't you? If God, if you knew God was talking to you, you knew there was, there was, there was like no question, you know that God is telling you to kill someone, how would you respond? Would you do it? Would you try to bargain with God? Uh, I watched a debate one time between a number of there was, there was Catholics and intellectuals and atheists in the, in the discussion, and the question was, what would you do if God told you to kill someone? And the one atheist was like, well, I would check my medication. It's like, no, God wouldn't, God wouldn't tell you to do that, right? Why would God say this to Abraham? Genesis 22. Read the first few verses here for you. I know the story is familiar to, to you, but it's... It's 
important. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham. And he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. Now we look at that and we're like, why would God do this? Well, go back to covenant again. One of the things that could be, it wasn't always, but could be a part of a blood covenant between two tribal leaders is that they would each give a son. They would, they would exchange a son to be raised in the house of the, of the person with whom they were entering the covenant. Now, that's not all that unusual. How many of you read Peace Child by Don Richardson? So this missionary to, is it Papua New Guinea? I think it is goes there and discovers that these tribes were making war with each other, but occasionally they would make peace, and the way they would do that is somebody from one tribe would give a child to the other tribe, and as long as that child was living, there would be peace between those two tribes. Same idea going on here in Genesis chapter 22. When you had blood covenants, occasionally a child from each tribe would cross over into the other person's household and be raised in their house as just another sign that we are one. Well, if you look at the blood covenant, we know that God already offered his son Jesus as Jesus walked the blood path. And now God, all God's asking is Abraham, is for Abraham to hold up his end of the covenant and give him a son. And so that's, that's how that request can be seen. When you look at it in light of the covenant, it makes a little more sense. The Genesis... 22 again. There's 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 a lot here, but we'll I'll read some of it and uh, try to get some of the points that apply here. Verse three. And Abraham rose up early in the morning, sat on his ass, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, clave the wood for the burnt offering, and rose up and went to the place of which God had told him. But then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder, and worship, and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, and laid it upon Isaac his son, and he took the fire in his hand, and a knife, and they went both of them together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. And they came to the place which God had told him of. And Abraham built an altar there, and laid the wooden altar in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand, and took the knife to slay his son. So this, this is one of those passages that has taken on more meaning for me since I'm a father. Because I can't imagine what it would take for a father to... Now, obviously, Isaac was older because he was walking and carrying the wood. But if God would tell me, Nate, I want you to take Kai and go sacrifice him. Can you imagine what goes through a father's heart to hear something like that? I think I can imagine something like that. To the point where Abraham finds Isaac, lays him on the altar, and takes a knife. Now, there's more going on in the story than just that. Actually, I don't even think this story is about Abraham in the least. Look at some of the wording here. <clears throat> Verse 2. Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest. 
like, thanks God for rubbing it in. Because Abraham has two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. And God has made it clear by this time that Isaac is to be the son of the covenant. But God said, Abraham, I want the son of the covenant. Now, Isaac has been born to Abraham and Sarah. Sarah's 90, Abraham's 100, so we're, we're some time past that. The chances of them having more children are not good, to say the least. Nothing short of a miracle would bring them another child. And God has to rub it in even further when he says, take your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering. Where is the land of Moriah? We don't know exactly. Two mountains that are that are um, put forward as being as being possibilities. Mount Gerasim is one, and Mount Zion is the other. I happen to think that it's probably Mount Zion where he went, which was located. And Abraham goes up the mountain. Uh, he is immediately obedient. That's one of the. Uh, Interesting things about this story, verse 3, Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and went on his way. We assume that he probably didn't tell Sarah where he was going. So a brief look at Isaac. Several things that, that are interesting here. Isaac carries the wood for his own sacrifice. He goes willingly. He questioned his father about the lamb. And there is no sign of struggle here from him. Abraham, by this point, is, we don't know how old, he's probably 120, 115, 125, something like that. Isaac's likely anywhere from 15 to 30 years old. Somebody that could have easily run away or overpowered his father, but he didn't. So, we come to verse 10. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. I'll keep reading here. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a thicket caught in the Abraham caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. Why does Genesis 22 even exist? Now God said that he did it to test Abraham. Hebrews 11 tells us that by faith Abraham offered up Isaac, believing that God would raise him from the dead. In other words, Abraham's faith didn't waver when he was doing this. But I still don't think the story is about Abraham. <clears throat> Notice the wording here. Isaac asks Abraham, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? What is Abraham's answer? Anybody know? God will provide himself a lamb. What does that mean? God will provide himself a lamb. In other words, God is going to provide himself as a lamb. Does that make sense? In other words, God is going to be offered as a lamb. 
And then Abraham raises the knife. Maybe he's about to bring it down, and the angel of the Lord stops him and says, Abraham. And Abraham turns and sees what caught in a thicket? A ram, not a lamb. And then Abraham calls the name of the place Jehovah Jireh, meaning the Lord will provide. Interesting wording, isn't it? You would think that Abraham would say the Lord has provided. But that's not what Abraham says. He says the Lord will provide. Why? Because the story isn't about Abraham. Now we can look at that story and we think, wow, what, what an amazing display of faith on Abraham's part. I don't want to take away from that at all. But imagine you're watching this scene set apart, God set apart in time, so to speak. God's watching this scene. He sees Abraham on the mountain there in Zion and he's ready to sacrifice his son. It stops. The ram is caught and sacrificed. We're like, oh, wow. And then the curtain closes. And about 2,000 years pass. And the curtain opens again, same place, Mount Zion. And what do we see? Well, let's look at the wording from the story. We see a father and a son, his only son whom he loved. You see, when God pointed out to Abraham that I want you to take your son, your only son whom you love, God wasn't telling Abraham something about Isaac. God was telling him something about his own son. When God said, Abraham, no, I know that you love me. Because you were not with able to, because you were not willing to hold your son back from me. When God says that, God wasn't telling us something about Abraham. God was telling us something about Himself. Because in the same place, there was another time where a father was watching his son, his only son, whom he loved. Only this time, there's no angel to call back the sacrifice. There's Jesus on the cross, and the Father can't watch. He won't look. There's a lot about Abraham's life that is very commendable, but as you look at everything that happened here, God was only giving Abraham a taste of what was going to come down the road. And because Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son, he passed the test. And God sacrificed his son willingly on the cross, passing the test, saying, yes, I love you. Don't ever doubt that. Because I did not withhold my son my only son who I loved from you. 
all of that started back when Jesus walked like that. And God told Abraham, we're going to make a covenant, and I'm going to be responsible for what happens if you break it. It's an amazing story. We're not done with Abraham yet. Uh, probably another class or two or three out of his life yet. And then we'll be done with him at least. Uh, Brett, Sarah, and Rachel, I've got this all around here.